From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. How far is Colorado from herd immunity? Or as the governor put it this week, We need to get to that level where the virus no longer has enough hosts to spread effectively. We'll ask the state epidemiologist, Dr. Rachel Herlihy, will also reflect on Colorado's vaccine rollout. Then CPR health reporter John Daly on the CDC's new guidelines about masks if you're vaxxed. Later, Purplish, our politics podcast, takes on Colorado's housing crunch. And one very proud sister, Liesl Chung, just flew back from Hollywood, where she rooted on her little brother, director of the film, Minari. For those of us who are immigrants, these immigration stories where families have undergone so much bring out a lot of emotions. Because of community support, Colorado Public Radio has scaled up its operations, delivering trustworthy information and music to audiences throughout the state on multiple easy-to-access platforms, with spaces for us all to share and embrace stories of hope, resilience, creativity, and joy. What CPR brings to your life is only possible because of financial support from the community. Many giving as Evergreen members, donating what feels affordable on a monthly basis. Add your support at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Herd immunity is the idea that when enough people get vaccinated or have survived COVID, that we keep the virus at bay. So how's Colorado going to get there? Can Colorado get to herd immunity? State epidemiologist Dr. Rachel Herlihy is thinking a lot about this. And welcome back, doctor. Thank you for having me. What would herd immunity look like in Colorado? And are we anywhere near it? Yeah, so herd immunity, or sometimes we call it community immunity, really means that enough people have developed immunity to a disease, either through infection or through vaccination, that there's no longer a risk of widespread community transmission or outbreaks occurring. Um, So I like to think of it as sort of the indirect protection that we get from others being infected or others having received the vaccine. So there's direct protection that an individual gets when they get the vaccine. And then there's this sort of indirect protection that a community gets when enough people in that community are vaccinated or immune. So it's when we get to that place where the virus no longer has a place to go. So cases or clusters still might happen, but the virus really will start to hit end after dead end and not be able to spread very far any longer. And are we anywhere near that? I'll just say that over half of eligible Coloradans have received their first dose of vaccine. So about two and a half million people, about 1.7 million are fully immunized Uh, Where does that put us in relation to community immunity, as you poetically said earlier? Sure. So herd immunity is actually a little bit of a moving target. You know, until we better understand COVID-19 immunity and how vaccination affects transmissibility, you know, we don't precisely know what percentage of the population need to be vaccinated or immune. But 
There's lots of factors that go into calculating herd immunity. It really depends on not just the percentage of the population that's infected or vaccinated, but also on basic characteristics of the, the virus. And with COVID-19, we've actually seen that change over time. With the introduction of variants, that contagiousness is changing. It also can be influenced by human behavior. So lots of the things that we're doing right now, wearing masks, social distancing, decrease the contagiousness. Um, so our actions can make a difference. There's also seasonality. Um, depends on how effective vaccines are, and then also really depends on how long immunity lasts. We are working closely with the Colorado School of Public Health to really try and understand what the threshold for herd immunity might look like in Colorado. And they release modeling reports every couple of weeks. And a modeling report that they released earlier this month estimated that probably somewhere between 70 and 80 percent, um, I think their lower estimate was around 67 percent, would be that immunity threshold needed in Colorado. So at this point, that's hey, a, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's a combination then of people vaccinated and people immune because they've had COVID. Correct. Exactly. And they think now we're probably right around 40 percent. Ah, OK. So the, a gap of, well, gosh, uh, probably around 30 percent. Uh, so a ways away. Um, and it sounds like we, we have a little issue with our connection. So I'll try to articulate things that may drop out here and there, a nature of our responsible distancing and having you join us remotely, doctor. Okay, are you satisfied with the vaccination rate thus far? Yes, I think that Colorado has, you know, done a fantastic job in, in really trying to push out vaccine as vaccine doses become available in the state. So I think we are making tremendous progress and in, in moving towards having a vaccinated population. We are still, though, seeing racial disparities. I mean, for example, Latinos make up nearly 22 percent of the state's population, but only about 9 percent are vaccinated. Um, whites are about 68 percent of the population, but are at 70 percent inoculated. Uh, the state has made some progress with African-Americans, but there's still a gap there. I, I guess with that in mind, I, I do want to ask about those variants you made reference to earlier. Is this a race against the clock between getting folks vaccinated and seeing these variants, you know, some of which are pretty nefarious, take over? Yes. Yeah, so certainly in, in some sense, it is going to be. I think, you know, the good news here is that we know that the vaccines that are authorized in the U.S. are, are really effective, including effective against these variants. There are some of these variants, the ones that are a little bit less common, the, the P1 variant from Brazil or the B1351 variant from South Africa, that do show some decreased vaccine effectiveness. But it's not to a large degree. It's a, it's a couple of points. And thankfully, we're starting with very highly effective vaccines. Um, but you're absolutely right in that that herd immunity threshold could potentially be high higher than it would have been a year ago when we didn't have these more transmissible variants circulating. What you're saying there is that the variants affect the calculus of when we reach herd immunity in Colorado. That may be harder to attain as they circulate. So there is a bit of a race against the clock. When it comes to vaccine hesitancy, I wonder how much technology is a barrier for folks having access to the internet, to go online and sign up. Are you finding that? Yeah. So, you know, 
We certainly want to make sure we're doing two things right now, ensuring that individuals have access to vaccine and then also that they have access to credible information to make decisions about vaccination for themselves or their family members. And I think the internet plays a role in both of those things. But I think it's also why we've made lots of strides in the last couple of weeks in ensuring that individuals can walk up to sites vaccine. So I think it's easier now than it ever has been in the state for individuals to get a dose of the vaccine or two doses of vaccine. Certainly stories are circulating about how people feel after they've received the vaccine, uh, particularly after the second dose for the two vaccine regimen. Uh, I wonder if there are people just worried about taking sick leave, missing a day off of work due to side effects. Have you heard about whether that's an obstacle here? Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly is a consideration. And actually, I saw a story this morning about individuals that were concerned that they weren't experiencing um, side effects after getting the vaccine, concerned that that means the vaccine didn't work in them. And we certainly don't believe that's the case. But but you're right in that a certain percentage of the population is going to have some symptoms um, more common after the second dose than the first dose. And it is important for individuals to think about their schedule, um, talk to their employer, use leave benefits, especially leave benefits that exist right now um, in the pandemic in case they do have some of those symptoms that follow vaccination. And again, those symptoms are a reminder to us that our body is responding, making the antibodies that we need to protect ourselves. It's interesting, Connecticut announced a program to offer people a free drink at participating restaurants if they show their vaccination card. I'm not sure as a public health official you want to necessarily encourage alcohol consumption, but have you talked about uh, in the Polis administration, I suppose, or at large, uh, any sort of incentive to get people vaccinated, to move the needle towards herd immunity? Yeah, so I think, you know, at this point, I think there, you know, there are potentially discussions ongoing about what some of those incentive could look like. At this point, I think there is still plenty of interest in the vaccine. Um, We're ensuring that vaccine is readily available. Um, Don't have specific information for you today about, you know, incentives that are being researched in Colorado. But aren't there doses that are going unused? Um, So we, at this point, are still seeing strong uptake. So high vaccination rates occurring. Um, You know, we do expect that as we get closer to the percentage of the population that wants to receive the vaccine that, you know, we could potentially start to see a slowing in vaccination rates. Um, But again, this is, I think, where, you know, the work that we've been doing to ensure that individuals have access to information, know how to get the vaccine easily. um, You know, I think that's where those measures come into play. Uh, Interesting to note that West Virginia will pay young people a hundred bucks apparently in savings bonds, according to NPR, to get vaccinated against COVID-19. West Virginia doing that for folks ages 16 to 35. Uh, Speaking of young people, uh, right now, those under 16 aren't eligible for the COVID vaccines. I mean, there's still like research and approval going on in that regard. How does that figure into herd immunity, Dr. Hurley? Yeah, so... The vaccine, at least the Pfizer vaccine, does go down to age 
16 at this point. So the good news is that, you know, 16, 17 year olds um, are certainly 18 year olds are eligible to receive the vaccine right now. And are also hoping for authorization of the use of at least that Pfizer vaccine in kids 12 to 15 in the next few weeks. So we will have the ability for younger kids to start receiving the vaccine soon, sooner. But the reality is that, you know, kids right now, zero to 16, are about 20% of Colorado's population. And so we do certainly need that population to be vaccinated for us to reach these herd immunity levels. Okay, that will be an important part of the equation. And then I know that is of particular concern, uh, well, for families, of course, but for educators as well who might be in contact with young people. Uh, Let's talk briefly about hospitalizations before we wrap up. Hospitalizations for COVID have actually risen lately in Colorado. Uh, Checking the numbers as of Tuesday, 662 people in the hospital. And I don't don't want to just let that number fly by. More than 600 people in the hospital right now with COVID. That's that's not uh, insignificant. With older folks mostly vaccinated, doctor, who's getting really sick now and why? What's the behavior behind that, do you think? Yeah, we we have been talking about this for for several weeks now about how this what we call fourth wave is going to look different from previous waves, and that is because of variants that are more transmissible and in some cases perhaps more severe, um, and could be more likely to result in hospitalization. But then also, if you look at our hospitalization numbers, the highest numbers among individuals being hospitalized right now are among those that are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. So it is a big shift from what we were seeing several months ago, the population that is being hospitalized right now. Okay. And did you say that's because they aren't necessarily yet vaccinated? Or maybe they are? That's correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Correct. So the place where we're seeing the lowest hospitalization rates right now are among the most highly vaccinated population, which is going to individuals over their 60, over 60. Okay. In fact, our health reporter, John Daly, has a story out just this week at CPR.org, headlined, In Colorado, COVID case rates are the lowest where vaccination rates are the highest and vice versa. That might seem self-evident, but uh, worth reporting for sure. Dr. Hurley, thanks for being with us. Really appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, thanks to our listeners for bearing with the connection there. Dr. Rachel Hurley, he is the state's lead epidemiologist. I mentioned our health reporter, John Daly. He was listening to that conversation. He's part of our COVID-19 coverage team. Hi, John. Hi, Ryan. What stands out from what you just heard there? You know, uh, I was really interested in uh, what Dr. Hurley had to say about uh, what that number is, that magic number of community immunity, herd immunity. And she was talking about the modeling in Colorado showing it to be in the 70 to 80 percent range and saying she thought we were roughly at about 40 Mm percent. So that gives you a picture of the hill still left to climb. And uh, also remember that uh, kids under 16 are not getting vaccinated yet. So, uh, you know, how that plays into it will be really important down the road, too. John, let's talk briefly about masks. The Center for Disease Control released new guidelines Tuesday. Tell us about these guidelines. Well, the CDC says fully vaccinated people do not need to wear masks anymore when they're outside. The exception is if they're in a big crowd of strangers, like at an outdoor venue, like a concert or a sporting event, like a baseball game. And uh, more than a third of U.S. adults, we should note, are now fully vaccinated. Okay, so if someone's vaccinated and they're outside, 
not necessarily needing to wear a mask. Say, exactly. say for big exactly. crowds. Although I, I can't personally imagine being in a big crowd yet. What's the thinking behind this guidance? Well, you know, the CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, she pointed out a couple of things. She said more people are getting vaccinated now. The number of COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations and deaths are going down nationally. We've seen some uh, increases in the hospitalizations in Colorado, Mm -hmm. which we're concerned about. But nationally, the trends are looking promising. And research shows less than 10 percent of documented transmission has happened outdoors. So outdoors uh, is absolutely, based on the data, uh, safer than, than indoors. What about people not vaccinated? Well, the CDC says they do not have to wear masks outside when they walk or bike or run alone or they're with people that they live with. And they don't need masks in small outdoor gatherings if everyone else is vaccinated. Okay, if there's that sort of shield around them of people vaccinated. Exactly. How do the new guidelines translate to what's happening specifically in Colorado? Well, Governor Polis says from the state's perspective, nothing has actually changed. In Colorado, we've never had an outdoor mask wearing requirement during this entire pandemic. Um, A few communities have done that. Those have largely ended a few weeks ago. So in many ways, we're ahead of the CDC on that. Even so, Governor Polis said Tuesday that the best advice he can give is this. If you have not been vaccinated, wear a mask when you're around other people and continue to socially distance. You know, the fascinating thing here, John, I think, is whether customs and kind of social behavior will follow the CDC guidelines. So the CDC saying if you're vaccinated, you don't necessarily have to wear a mask outside. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. Maybe that's why people are buying things that say I'm, I'm vaccinated, pins and bracelets and things like that, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and I think when people are wearing masks, uh, it sort of sends a message to other people about what they should be doing in that setting. The science and the culture of this. Thanks so much, John. You bet. Health reporter John Daly is on CPR's COVID-19 coverage team. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. Abandoned coal mines, thousands of them in Colorado, release methane long after they close. One man is on a mission to change that, but he doesn't have much help. So might this become a tool in the fight against climate change? Miguel Otarola from CPR's climate team filed this report from the North Fork Valley. I'm walking around the Elk Creek coal mine with Tom Vessels and his son Eugene, who is carrying around an instrument called a gazomat. Rat. 100 parts per million right now. The device is a long nozzle that detects high levels of methane coming out of the ground. This mine shut down nine years ago, but methane gas trapped in the underground rocks still seeps into the atmosphere as tunnels collapse. Vessels spent his career drilling gas wells across Colorado. Now he uses the methane here to generate electricity for the surrounding towns. His idea was simple. The gas is coming out whether we like it or not. Why not do something with it and bring down greenhouse gas emissions at the same time? You'd see the the global warming process slow down, and that's what we want to have happen. But years later, he's still the only one doing it in Colorado. In fact, he's one of the only ones doing it in the entire country. Turns out getting rid of coal mine methane may be good for the environment, but it's not very good for anyone's bottom line. You can have all the potential in the world, but if you don't have a market, you won't have any development. 
As a greenhouse gas, methane is 28 times more potent than carbon dioxide, and coal mining makes up a third of all methane coming out of the fossil fuel industry. Some research suggests coal mines emit more methane than the oil and gas sector. Experts agree. Capturing the methane from the mines would make a significant greenhouse gas reduction. There's just no real use for it. John Messner sits on the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. I think the biggest challenge is coming up with an economically viable, beneficial use for that, that waste byproduct. Hello. Few places know more about this than the North Fork Valley, where the state says most of the high-value coal mines exist. A group started meeting in 2017 to brainstorm ways to use the methane. Climate scientist Chris Kasky says it's really hard to find alternate uses for the gas. We looked through all the economic possibilities and kept saying, no, that one doesn't pencil out. No, that one's not going to have community support. No, no, no. You can use methane to generate electricity, but Vessel says it's more expensive and less efficient than other forms of renewable energy. It's cheaper to just burn the methane on site, transforming it into carbon dioxide, which is a weaker greenhouse gas. He says this is where the government needs to step in. So you have to have a policy incentive. Now, if you looked at the greenhouse gas we destroy, suddenly we become incredibly um, economic. Countries like Germany and Australia pay companies to produce energy from captured methane through a special kind of tariff. There's also the cap-and-trade program in California, where companies can offset their own emissions by supporting projects that capture and remove methane. If you did that, then I think you'd see tremendous economic activity in Colorado. But there are other barriers. Messner with the state's Oil and Gas Commission says just leasing the methane from abandoned mines is difficult and requires a stack of permits from different jurisdictions. If we can come up with a leaking, leasing mechanism to do it and a regulatory scheme to ensure that it is not offsetting impacts, uh, I think you'd have a number of folks that would be interested in, in pursuing it. Methane capture could soon become a lot more appealing. Congress is considering the Colorado Outdoor Recreation and Economy Act, which would make it easier for companies to lease the methane from abandoned mines in the North Fork Valley. Another bill in the state legislature would require coal mines to report their emission reductions from methane capture. And do you want to do it inside or outside? There's probably more ambient. Scientists say the amount of methane leaking from abandoned coal mines will only grow as more mines close. For now, the benefit of capturing the gas is mainly environmental. Tanya Henderson, the executive director of the Western Slope Conservation Center, says the climate benefits are worth it on their own. And so it's not really a question of, is this the most economically feasible thing to do? It's a question of, is this the right thing to do? And is this something that will improve our world? And I think it will. There's only one mine still producing coal in the North Fork Valley. The train that picks up that coal passes the Elk Creek mine as it continues down the tracks. Vessel's project has reduced methane emissions by about 250 billion cubic feet a year. That's like if half a million cars just disappeared from the road. If the U.S. has a future in methane capture, Vessels wants this Colorado coal mine to be the place where it all started. I'm Miguel Otarola, CPR News. Renters and home buyers are having an even tougher time than usual. There's the uncertainty around evictions, the bidding wars for real estate, and it has caught the attention of state lawmakers, as we'll hear from public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny. They host Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. My name is Jen Bogart, and myself, along with my four children, were forcefully and unlawfully evicted from our home on February 26th. What you're hearing is tape from a committee hearing last month at the state capitol. 
We face unrealistic timelines to take any sort of corrective actions to delay or halt the eviction. For three hours, witnesses argued about whether Colorado's law has the right balance between tenants and landlords. The property is perfect to meet the needs of the renters in my area. We will not offer our apartment as a rental if this bill passes in its current form. Housing is a huge issue for many Coloradans, and not surprisingly, it's also on the mind of a lot of Colorado lawmakers this session. Yeah, definitely. So coming into this legislative session, Republicans and Democrats said their top focus was economic recovery from the pandemic. And Democrats in particular have said the pandemic really highlighted deep disparities in Colorado. I think that seems to be one of the drivers of this huge focus on housing. Yeah, we're, we're seeing one of the bigger slates of housing bills this year, and it's totally connected into the pandemic and fears about the impact it's going to have on uh, people across income levels and on people's ability to maintain their homes and their lifestyles. So, Andy, obviously housing issues in the state and concerns about the expense of housing and everything, it's been an ongoing problem. Do you feel like the pandemic has really opened up the door wider for bigger reforms? Yeah, During the first part of the pandemic, if you remember, housing loomed really large. There were all these protests to cancel the rent, and we knew this was devastating jobs where uh, a lot of lower-income people worked, and there was really enormous fear of the tsunami of evictions. And it ended up getting a federal moratorium on evictions and a state moratorium on evictions. That was pretty incredible. Like, I don't think that we've ever in modern history seen that kind of widespread action on evictions and rentals like that. And so evictions are pretty low, right? And is that because of this moratorium? Yeah, the eviction tsunami has not hit. Evictions have been at historic low throughout the pandemic. But they've been kind of fluctuating up and down, coming back some because the state of the moratorium has kept changing. But for now, that moratorium is in place through September. So the huge wave of evictions hasn't hit. Here we are kind of at this moment in time where hopefully the pandemic seems to be starting to wrap up. And some lawmakers do want to change laws around evictions long term. Yeah. So we're seeing lawmakers look to that future and start to talk about, okay, is this tsunami eviction still coming? What can we do to shore things up for after the pandemic when some of these restrictions and extra benefits start to disappear? And also, how can they change the housing market for the better in the long term, you know, at least according to them? We started this episode hearing some tape from a woman testifying on a bill that deals with evictions. And tell us more about that legislation and what it would do. That was Senate Bill 173, and it's probably the central, most talked about of all these bills. Okay. It's not like a moratorium, so it wouldn't stop evictions or cancel the rent or anything. The heart of it is about changing the way that evictions work and trying to limit some of the avenues that people end up getting kicked out of housing. Mm. Most notably, it would set a cap on the kind of late fees that landlords can pile onto you as you miss your rent. And it would create a grace period where you wouldn't be able to be charged late fees unless you were a certain amount of time late. So if you do make it harder to evict renters, where does that leave landlords? And how much pushback are supporters getting from especially the small individual landlords and even some of the corporate owners? I could almost predict how this debate was going to go because it's the same every time where you hear the exact response that you would expect, which is that landlords say that if you put on excessive restrictions on eviction, it'll Mm -hmm. take them too long to get non-paying tenants out. It'll Mm -hmm. take away too much of their power to actually collect rent and police their own properties. And they, they do tend to point to smaller landlords as the ones that are the most vulnerable, where 
oh, well, if they can't collect their rent this month, how are they going to pay a mortgage? How are you going to stop them from just selling and getting out of the rental market? So, you know, eviction is one thing. But actually being able to afford your rent or your mortgage if you own a house or condo, that's another question. Totally different question. What about addressing that, you know, such high housing costs in Mm -hmm. so many parts of Colorado? Oh, boy. That's the hard question. Yeah. In a weird way, eviction, despite the really difficult politics around it, is an easier thing to tackle because it's something that the state legislature has distinct control over. They can just go in there and kind of change some of the numbers and the processes. But when you're talking about high rent levels and high housing costs... That's a problem with the housing market right now, which is a lot harder to control. I think as everybody knows right now, our for sale market is just going bonkers. It's almost impossible for most people to afford a home right now. Yeah, I was looking at some of the statistics and I read an article in the Denver Post that quoted a realtor. And this person said he'd made two bids for clients recently. One was $100,000 over the asking price. The other was $90,000 over the asking price. They didn't get the houses they still lost. (laughs) That's a weird phenomenon. I should say the state legislature actually is trying to tackle one element of the housing market itself, and it's kind of notable. Mm. They're trying to encourage more affordable housing by reversing, overriding something called the Telluride decision. Tell me more about that. This would basically allow local governments to have a lot more control of their own affordable housing policies, Mm. doing stuff like saying, if you're going to build a new community, you need to include some units that have lower prices or you need to do some alternative. Basically, it's a form of rent control on new development. Lawmakers definitely over the years have looked at what they could do to bring housing prices down. And a couple years ago, the biggest discussion at the Capitol was dealing with construction defects. And so there was a bipartisan bill, if you remember, and it, 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 it made it more difficult for condo owners to sue builders for construction defects. And so the goal of that was to spur more affordable condo construction. And people were saying at the time, we have a housing crisis. Talking about this makes me realize we need to follow up and check back in on how effective that legislation was. Oh, man. I think we can safely say it wasn't uh, it wasn't a cure-all. It probably didn't solve everything, despite how much attention and time it took. And, you know, to go back to what I said earlier, that's just kind of a function of the fact that the state doesn't have absolute control of the housing market, can't control how cities are doing zoning and limiting construction or can't control the price of lumber, which is like out of control right now. Or the fact that a pandemic changed the housing market a little bit. Yeah. I, 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 it was such a feat, though, to get that construction defects bill done. Mm-hmm. I mean, it took years of work. Mm-hmm. And there was this grand bargain, if you will, Republicans, Democrats, home builders, progressives. Do you see anything like that or similar to that taking shape this year? Not On the partisan front, Republicans, at least in terms of being sponsors, haven't been heavily involved in the biggest of these bills. They're Mm -hmm. mostly coming from Denver area Democrats. Republican sponsors are on board with some more administrative stuff about producing reports on affordable housing and some more technical, smaller changes that, that won't really change the market as a whole. So one thing there has been pretty broad support for is uh, direct aid for renters. Mm-hmm. Um, that was part of an earlier COVID state stimulus package yeah. and expected to be a priority for another round of state funds. You're right. That does feel like there was that much broader support because there was such an obvious immediate need. And there also was a bunch of federal money to give out. And now there's been more state money than expected. 
So there was consensus on at least trying to patch some of the holes with that immediate stimulus and support. But that doesn't change, again, how the, the market itself will work. That won't change what happens after the pandemic. I mean, I would note there's a different bill that deals with direct housing aid that is somewhat controversial because mm. it would try to help undocumented immigrants access state housing benefits and direct assistance. And that is the other topic we're discussing in this week's episode of Purplish. To put this in perspective, I think it's safe to say, having talked to lawmakers and advocates, that this session is pretty unprecedented in terms of the number of bills that could pass and that impact undocumented immigrants specifically. So these are measures that try to make their lives better. I spoke with Assistant House Majority Leader Serena Gonzalez Gutierrez. Even though historically and currently the issue of undocumented immigrants and benefits, there's lots of disagreement on that topic. She says she doesn't see that it should be controversial. We know that immigrants, undocumented or not, they are some of the main contributors to our economy. They contribute in taxes. They contribute in, you know, consumerism and buying things. I don't see why this is such a big issue. Well, I guess it's my turn to ask some of the questions. Uh, Bento, do you think the pandemic has brought a renewed focus on this topic, just like with housing? I think so, yes. Democrats want to focus on equity, and they say that the pandemic has highlighted disparities, as I was mentioning earlier, and also that undocumented immigrants, a lot of them have been on the front lines of the workforce during the pandemic. But Gonzalez Gutierrez says it's not just about the pandemic. That isn't the only reason that there's a lot of interest from more lawmakers than usual. She said Democrats who do control state government, from the governor to her colleagues at the Capitol, are more willing to pass reforms because Donald Trump is no longer president. Ah. There was a lot of pushback just because of concerns and fears of, you know, what the federal government could do to local governments, to state governments. And so I think a lot of us are at this point where we're ready to move on um, from that time, right, the, that four years. That's interesting. That reminds me of the healthcare debate where we've heard that Democrats might be more interested in healthcare reform because they know the Biden administration will be more supportive. But mm -hmm. uh, on immigration, what, what kind of bills are we seeing? Well, one of the key measures would roll back a ban that prevents cities and counties from providing public benefits to undocumented immigrants. So this ban has been law since 2006. And that was when we had a split legislature and Democrats and Republicans got behind this effort and at the time promoted it as one of the strictest anti-immigration laws in the U.S. And so wow. I would say advocates and members of uh, the community fighting for more rights for undocumented workers, they have wanted to change this since 2006, you know, the day Republican Governor Bill Owens signed it into law. So this is a long wow. time coming if this passes. That must feel like a huge potential victory for them and also shows like while wow, how much immigration policy and debate has changed since the 2000s. It was it was a different world. Yeah, especially from the Democratic side, for sure. They've gotten a lot more willing to stand up for undocumented immigrants. I think that's right. How have Republicans reacted to that bill and the others? Well, I talked to Republican Senator Don Corm. He represents Montrose and the southwest part of the state, so a more rural community. He's one of the most moderate lawmakers at the Capitol. 
He said he doesn't support this, at least right now. He feels coming out of the pandemic, the state should focus on citizens who were really hurt during the pandemic, who can't get their unemployment benefits, which I know you've covered a lot of issues around that system. So he doesn't feel like Colorado should be adding more people into getting benefits right now. And then I also talked to Senator Bob Rankin. He's a Republican from Carbondale. He serves on the powerful Joint Budget Committee. He acknowledged undocumented immigrants are here in this state. They're part of the workforce. He says he doesn't want undocumented immigrants to just be set aside and kind of abandoned. But he also thinks there needs to be a federal solution. He wants the federal government to step in here. And he doesn't want states to just take these piecemeal approaches. If we're the only state passing all this stuff, we will be attracting a large population, and we can't handle it. We, we Housing. I mean, we do not have housing in my r- rural communities for, for these folks. So it's a very delicate balance. I want to do everything I can for those people who live in my district. As long as they're here, I can't control that. On the other hand, I think we, it can get out of balance. Well, that's long been a conservative talking point or argument is that there's limited resources and you can't support more people. You can't encourage an influx. But it's very 2021 Colorado to hear it wrapped back around to housing. Right. I mean, housing is such a complex issue. And this just highlights that, you know, here we are talking about a bill about undocumented immigrants. And it's one of Rankin's top concerns and also notes that the housing challenges are not metro area specific. It is throughout Colorado. Yeah, I think it shows that kind of like healthcare housing costs have now become acknowledged bipartisan issue. On immigration, though, again, Benta, they I know there's also a, a new bill signed into law that would remove the term, quote, illegal aliens from a lot of contracts, you know, state documents, things like that. Yeah, the term that would replace that or is going to replace it since it's law is uh-huh. workers without authorization. Democratic Senator Julie Gonzalez was one of the main sponsors of this change. And I heard stories from community members who were like, why why do they have to use such ugly language? Which feels symbolic, but also is important because every time that people were being asked to read a contract and to see that language there, it was hurtful. It was mostly a partisan vote. In the Senate, three Republicans did back that bill. They supported getting rid of the term illegal aliens. Mm -hmm. Um, In the House, it was strictly party line. Well, and the argument against illegal aliens language is that people aren't illegal and that maybe the act of crossing the border without authorization is. But it's an effort to force people to talk about undocumented immigrants as people. There's a whole slate of bills Democrats are running on immigration We couldn't get to all of them in this episode, but I did want to talk about a bill that got unanimous support in both the House and the Senate, and it would expand an existing state law that says it's a crime to threaten or extort or blackmail someone because of their immigration status. So one of the things they pointed to is part of the expansion. You can't try to prevent someone from doing something either. So they cited a case where there was a domestic violence victim. Mm -hmm. The alleged perpetrator said, if you go to the police, I'm going to turn you into ICE. So you you can't extort people for this. And even though the the bigger picture, we know there's not agreements on policy, people did all say, yes, this needs to be expanded. That's it for this week's episode of Purplish, but we do have that little moment where we step back and say, wait, what? And I had a moment, you know, there's a lot to choose from sometimes, but... (laughs) 
one of the, the fun parlor games at the Capitol is <laughs> trying to figure out when the session will end. Fun. Yes. Very, very exciting, I know. But um, <laughs> under the state constitution, the legislative session cannot go longer than 120 days. Mm-hmm. For the first time ever, lawmakers got a ruling that under these extraordinary circumstances of a pandemic, they can pause the session. They did that in January to get as many people who wanted vaccines vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So usually the session ends in May. But because of that pause earlier, the end date, if, if we go the full 120 days, is Saturday, June 12th. And I may have asked a staff for that a few weeks ago because I just wanted to find out how late am I going to be in the Capitol this summer? Oh, I've been asking everybody this. Yeah. So I was on a call with legislative leaders in the House and Senate, and they set this goal of finishing by Memorial Day. And in my head, I was thinking, wait, what, really? Are you actually thinking that's realistic? Memorial Day. That's a full, like, two weeks almost, right? I think so. Yeah. So we've got federal guidance on stimulus, you know, how the state is going to spend billions of dollars that they they expect that to be legislation and so many other huge agenda items out there. Yeah, they've still got to figure out transportation and the public option. I'm not counting on finishing earlier. And in fact, I never expect to. And I don't begrudge them taking 120 days either. But I'd love it if the final moment is not midnight, June 12th. Well, I've got my spiritual defenses up. I'm not even accepting the idea that Memorial Day is going to be a thing. I'm I'm there until the bitter end. (laughs) Then you can be pleasantly surprised if it does happen. Very pleasantly. Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News with hosts Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland. Catch this and other episodes at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a big sister goes to Hollywood. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Climate change is a global issue with undeniable local impact. I'm Joe Wirtz, editor of CPR's climate team, and we're focused on deeply researched, comprehensive coverage about the environment in and affecting Colorado. You already hear this work on your radio. Now you can also get it in your inbox. Sign up for CPR News Climate Weekly for a digest of fact-based reporting on the impact, solutions, and political aspects of climate change. Sign up at CPR.org slash Climate Weekly. It was an invitation Liesl Chung of Colorado Springs couldn't refuse to fly out to Los Angeles and support her filmmaker brother during the Oscars. Her brother is Lee Isaac Chung, director of Minari, which won for Best Supporting Actress. The movie is based on the Chung family's real-life story of moving from Colorado to a farm in Arkansas. You can hear our interview with the director at CPR.org, but we wanted to spend some time with his sister, Liesl, chat about what it's like to have your childhood on the silver screen and to be a part of Hollywood's biggest night. And uh, Liesl, thanks for being with us. I understand you're actually just back from California. That's right. I just returned last night. It was so exciting to just be in L.A. and spend some time with my brother and my sister-in-law, Valerie, and just to be able to support them during this exciting weekend. Yeah, at a time when families haven't necessarily been able to be in close proximity because of the pandemic. I might ask you about that in a bit. But how has it felt to have your family story resonate in the way it has? I mean, Minati was up for six Academy Awards. Why do you think it has resonated? Well, I think the reception that Minati has received is far beyond anything that our family and even my brother had expected. And so it's been a surreal experience. 
uh, Isaac created this script based on his childhood memories and just really thinking about what had happened during this time in our lives. And, and the movie isn't exactly the Chung family. The Yi family is inspired from those memories. Mm. But uh, having said that, when I watch this movie, I see moments that I recognize. And I think to have people connect with that has been really meaningful. I've had people tell me that they have bawled throughout the movie or that even a week later, all of a sudden they'll be thinking about the movie and they'll get really emotional. And I think people connect with it on on multiple levels. Um, for those of us who are immigrants, these immigration stories where families have undergone so much bring out a lot of emotions. And then I think even for those who haven't been immigrants, whether they were farmers or just had an incredible grandmother, uh, there are many different ways that people connect with this film. You mentioned that this is, to some extent, an immigrant story, a story of Korean-American immigrants pursuing the American dream. I wonder if your relationship with your brother or other members of your family has changed or deepened in any way since the release of this film? Well, I do think with this film, it's caused our family to reflect a lot about the past. And I would say from my perspective, it's caused me to think a lot about just the sacrifices that my parents made, because it was challenging for them to come to this country and for my family in particular to be in rural Arkansas, where they weren't surrounded by a lot of other immigrants. And so I thought a lot about what they've endured and just the sacrifices that they've made. And it's made me incredibly grateful. And then I will say with the award season, the whole Chung family has been doing family Zoom calls where we all stream things together. And so just the movie itself has brought us together in that way. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there was some risk in having your brother tell a family story? Like, you know, were you... Were you nervous about how it would be handled and what people would think? And, you know, it's it's not everyone who has their childhood, even if it's fictionalized, put on the big screen. Yeah, well, my brother has talked about this publicly, how he was very concerned about how our family was going to react. And <laughs> yeah. none of us read the script or had seen anything related to the movie until... Uh, he had an edited version. And so we all sat down as a family Thanksgiving of 2019. And he showed us the film and he says that he was in the back of the room. And when he saw my parents and me start to cry as we watched it, he knew it was going to be okay. The, the good kind of crying, the right kind of crying, in other words. That's right. Yeah, uh -huh. The right kind of crying. I, think <laughs> we just, I mean, we loved it. We loved it. And afterwards, my parents, just held him for a long time. And I think they were grateful and they were proud and they've felt that way throughout this entire journey. To reference something we talked about earlier, this film really is about togetherness, but it comes out at a time because of the pandemic when togetherness hasn't necessarily been possible. Do you want to reflect on that kind of tension? It does. And, you know, I think that's one of the things I love about the ending of the movie. Folks have asked, why is it that he ended it the way that he did? Because you finish and you're not exactly sure, is the family farm going to be successful? Mm -hmm. Are they going to achieve the American dream? Are they going to be okay, at least in terms of just their family success financially? And so you're left with those questions. But the one thing that you do get at the end of this movie is that this family loves each other and that they're going to stay together. 
and I feel like that's the most important thing. I mean, I feel like the fact that the family has endured all this and they choose to love each other and stay together is so important. I feel like that is a great message during this time in particular. Mm-hmm. The family endures just the difficulty of farming. The family endures destruction. I won't say more about that. The family endures just the difficulty of navigating love and relationships in close quarters when faced with adversity. Uh, And I think what I hear you saying is your real-life family has also endured the pandemic and uh, so many of the obstacles that have come our way in the last year or so. Uh, Why don't we wrap up on uh, something a little... Uh, a little lighter, which is, how was your Oscar experience? I know that they were pretty strict about who got to go into the theater, but did you get like a little taste of of the glitter and glamour of Hollywood or what? Oh, it was a great weekend. Uh, I was there when my brother was getting ready. It was a whole team of folks getting him (laughs) and my sister-in-law, Valerie, ready for the Oscars. And so that was really exciting to be there and to support them. Uh, And then right afterwards to be at the event to celebrate with him and the rest of the Minari team was wonderful. Was there good grub? Uh, There was good grub and there was great company. (laughs) Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, I appreciate your time, Liesl. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ryan. Liesl Chung of Colorado Springs. Her brother is Denver-born director Lee Isaac Chung, whose movie Minari got six Oscar nominations. It won in the Best Supporting Actress category. Here's music from the soundtrack. that's our show for today, with thanks to the Colorado Matters family. Carl Bielek. Allie Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Thanks as well to Monica Castillo. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. It's all